Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Unconfirmed, the podcast that reveals how the marquee names in crypto are reacting to the week's top headlines and gets the inside scoop on what they see on the horizon. I'm your host, Laura Shin. If you're making vacation plans, consider the crypto weekend retreat I'm teaching with Melton Demirers of CoinShares and Jalak Putra of Future Perfect Ventures. It'll be at the beautiful Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York from September 20th to the 22nd. Be sure to check out the show notes for the link to sign up. Also, if you don't yet get my weekly email newsletter, go to unchainedpodcast.com right now to sign up. And don't forget that Unchained and Unconfirmed are also on YouTube. You can subscribe there to be alerted to all the latest episodes of both podcasts. Crypto.com is the place you can buy crypto at true cost. Earn up to 8% per year on your BTC, ETH, XRP, and more. Install the Crypto.com app now. CypherTrace cutting-edge cryptocurrency intelligence powers anti-money laundering, blockchain analytics, and threat intel. Leading exchanges, virtual currency businesses, banks, and regulators themselves use CypherTrace to comply with regulation and to monitor compliance. Today's guest is Jeremy Lair, co-founder and CEO of Circle. Welcome, Jeremy. Thanks, Laura. Great to be here. This week, you announced the launch of a new subsidiary in Bermuda. You also received a Digital Assets Business Act license from Bermuda. Tell us about the new subsidiary and license and why Circle decided to pursue them. Sure. So, you know, as, as you look at the crypto markets, um, there's obviously a, a tremendous amount going on. And, you know, we operate um, a number of different businesses. We have an exchange business, a, a, a trading business. We have retail products, um, and we have a you know we have a product roadmap to build quite a quite a number of different crypto finance products. And as we you know looked at the business and looked at the regulatory environment in the U.S., um, one of the things became very very clear to us, which is that, um, and, and this has been clear for some time, and I think this has been really amplified more recently, is that the you know the, the kinds of products and services and digital assets that can be uh, offered in the United States um, is just becoming significantly more restrictive. And at the same time, the innovation in the space, the number of new projects, new digital assets, new blockchains, um, innovations in the models of the blockchains is proliferating. And so it was very important from our perspective that we be able to offer as broad a set of crypto finance products as possible to as many customers in the world as possible and it became clear that the way to do that was to really have um, a U.S.-specific business that's regulated within the context of U.S. regulations, um, but perhaps more limited, and a international business that is also regulated um, and supervised because we do believe um, ultimately customers, whether they be individuals or institutions, want to know that the firms they're interacting with have supervision, and, and I'll come back to that in a moment. And so we um, really, starting late last year, began looking 
to you know figure out uh, you know where can we set up this international operation and as you probably know there are a number of countries who have really looked at embracing um, digital assets as a new type of financial asset and and also the kind of market participants that includes uh, countries like Singapore Switzerland Malta Bermuda um, and some larger countries are pursuing things as well like France and Japan as we looked more closely what we found is that um, what Bermuda had put into place as a national crypto policy which is this digital assets business act, was one of the most thoughtful and comprehensive frameworks for crypto that we had seen. Um, and the things that we really were attracted to were a few things. So one was um, it was comprehensive. It was a, a regulatory framework that spanned kind of the full suite of different types of financial products and services that we build at Circle, everything from payments and custody to trading and uh, both retail and institutional products, as well as the exchange business. And so it was a comprehensive uh, regulatory framework. I think a second piece, which is really critical, is that um, it was a framework that had a high bar around it. Um, Bermuda has given out very few licenses, and we're the first company in the world to receive what's called a Class F license, which is the the broadest. Um, and the, the Bermuda Monetary Authority um, has a very high bar on the types of firms that they will ultimately accept for registration, licensing, and supervision. And that was attractive to us. Um, we think it's important that there, there is a high bar around this. Um, and then most, maybe most critically is that I think um, Bermuda has defined digital assets as a new class of financial asset. And rather than just trying to um, you know, define digital assets in the context of currencies or commodities or securities or to apply, um, you know, pre-existing banking and payments law or securities and investments law. They took sort of the core features of their banking and payments laws and securities and investment laws and integrated them into a new framework for digital assets. And this is critical. Um, we think it's critical that digital assets be able to be issued and offered and utilized by people. And they may have financial contract features. They may have utility and commodity features. They may also function as payment tokens and currencies. And that's a good thing, that kind of combination of those. So the, the framework there um, really embraced that. And what we found was a government, both you know on the policymaking side in particular, that wanted to work with this industry that wanted to um, that acknowledge that the technology is moving incredibly fast and that they need to be responsive with policy and they want to learn along the way as well. And so it's very attractive um, from from all of those perspectives. And that led to a process that has been ongoing for many, many months um, and then ultimately receiving the license and announcing the new operation. Well, there's so much to unpack there. Um, and some of my later questions, we'll get to that. Uh, just one Note before my next question for listeners who missed my interview with Gabriel Abed of Bit, uh, we do talk a little bit about Bermuda's friendliness to crypto companies and projects, and Premier David Burt there, who um, I think really has been the champion of this industry um, in that country. So, Jeremy, you've expressed frustration in the past with the SEC for not providing enough clarity. Uh, to the crypto space. And uh, I believe that led you to geofence some assets on Poloniex. So how do you think 
in general, how do you think lack of clarity around regulation has affected Poloniex's business? Yeah, I mean, I think, and this is, you know, broadly the case, if you look at the last couple of years, you know, first, there was sort of some some very broad kind of guidance around, hey, we think almost everything is a security, and you should look at the Howey test. And I think what that led to over the course of, you know, uh, a lot of the last couple of years was it put U.S. exchanges and and projects as well in a really difficult place with all this uncertainty. Well, w- where do we fit in that, and can we can we be competitive? And so, you know, largely what you've seen happen is you've seen market share shift from you know many U.S. based uh, players to you know, mostly uh, Asian based players, and that's very real. Um, and that has happened, and that's incontestable. Um, I think. Um, it's also led to, of course, um, you know, more and more projects having to jump through all kinds of hoops to, you know, domicile in other places. And, um, you know, really, and as we've talked about, I think, you know, the, the, the U S is, is missing out, um, on a lot of things as a result of that. I think what one of the critical things that happened though was the, the more recent, uh, April staff guidance from the SEC, which in some ways did provide more clarity. Um, but in our view, it was going in absolutely the opposite, uh, if not, you know, wrong direction. Um, it expanded the scope of how, uh, digital assets might be deemed securities. And our view, and it's, this has been consistent for a very long time, is that it does not make sense to attempt to fit digital assets into just, you know, are they a security? Are they a commodity? Are they a currency? But it really makes sense to establish a new set of definitions for digital assets. And these, these digital assets can be, have features that are securities like, commodity like, and currency like all at the same time or in different contexts. And that's a really powerful thing. And so, you know, that's what we're advocating for. Uh, you know, that's what we think is necessary for major nations around the world is to uh, adopt a, a national crypto policy that embraces and defines digital assets as a new thing with the appropriate supervision around intermediaries and firms and market participants that's necessary. We're going to discuss more about what crypto regulation in the U.S. should look like. But first, a quick word from the sponsors who make this show possible. Will the world follow France and advocate banning privacy coins? Will government-backed stablecoins become the new fiat? Are distributed and peer-to-peer exchanges just a flash in the pan? The answer is maybe. Virtual currencies can flourish and create a new, private, and more versatile economy. But that grand vision can't happen without keeping crypto clean. And that requires support of governments and accountability for bad actors. Privacy-enhanced compliance using cryptographic controls has the potential to preserve anonymity without compromising legitimate investigations. CypherTrace is working on this vision of the future. Sign up to stay up to date on the Privacy Enhanced Compliance Initiative and receive authoritative crypto AML reports quarterly. www.cyphertrace.com slash keep crypto clean. Crypto.com is the place you can buy crypto at true cost. You can buy over 40 coins at the lowest possible prices with no fees and no markups. At Crypto.com, we grow your crypto for you too. You can earn up to 8% per year on BTC, ETH, XRP, and more when you deposit in any of the one-month, three-month, or flexible terms. 
Download the Crypto.com app on iOS or Android now. Back to my conversation with Jeremy Allaire of Circle. So something that I was wondering about was that I noticed Circle, sorry, I noticed Poloniex um, has, uh, you know, pretty small market share at this point. Two years ago, it had about 58% according to the block, and now it's 1%. And I also was checking the Bitwise Bitcoin trade volume site where they rank the different exchanges by real Bitcoin trading volume after weeding out what they believe are fake trades. And there, Poloniex's BTC trading volume for the last 24 hours was about 10 million. And of course, so we know Binance is, you know, the, the biggest of these, and that was at 500 million. But Coinbase and Kraken and uh, Coinbase and Kraken were at 200 million and 190 million. And, you know, those companies are kind of dealing with the same types of regulations that Poloniex has been. So why are they not hindered in the same way that Poloniex has been? Yeah. Well, I think uh, a couple things. So the first is, um, you know, when we acquired Poloniex a year ago or a little over a year ago, um, this was a, a company and an operation and an infrastructure that was uh, that needed, let's just say, an enormous amount of help. Um, the platform was falling over. The infrastructure needed to be completely rebuilt and is continuing to be, you know, completely rebuilt. Um, you know, there were constant, you know, wallet failures, people getting funds stuck. There was a 200,000 ticket backlog of customer support requests. So this was, you know, really, um, we took over something that, that, uh, that to some degree was on life support. But, so but you a, paid a huge $400 million dollars for it. So that suggests. So the, the headline number that was reported, uh, that is never a number that we've ever confirmed. So we, we've never confirmed what. Um, the actual transaction was that was a rumored a rumor number um, in any case um, uh, at, at the time of course you know Poloniex uh, ha- has had you know a very large customer base um, over the 2014 to 2018 millions of customers have grown to use the product um, and so we've been in a you know we've been in a process of rebuilding an enormous number of pieces of it and that's been significant now one critical thing is that um, you know, clearly there are a number of exchanges, including the likes of Kraken and Coinbase and Bitstamp, um, who have had fiat connectivity into their markets for a very long time. And the kind of core Bitcoin trading on a global basis, um, you know, you really see an enormous amount of that volume come from exchanges that have really good on and off ramps for fiat. And so that was clearly one of the things that we knew we needed to do. And in fact, just in the last um, few weeks, we launched direct fiat support with wires from 80 plus countries, uh, with card support from over 50 countries. And so we've literally, you know, been able to put that in place. And we think that's pretty important um, in, in growth as well. I think the, the other piece is, you know, Poloniex, as you know, um, was very much, um, you know, known for its, you know, support for a wide range of altcoins. It was sort of the preeminent altcoin exchange for a very, very long time. And, you know, two things happened. One is, I think the SEC environment in the US, you know, pretty significantly restricted um, what we could do in that space. And Asian exchanges surged ahead. And so the altcoin share 
very much shifted to exchanges that were launching more and more assets constantly. And that certainly has been impactful. I think we do intend to become significantly more competitive in terms of the markets that we support. And our international operations are going to be really critical to that. Um, and, uh, you know, the, so those are, those are certainly significant factors. Uh, the other is that, um, you know, when we took over Poloniex, um, we needed to have the KYC and AML policies and the compliance policies be in line with U.S. regulations, um, which required full identity verification and, um, you know, some of the other exchanges around the world um, have not in, imposed those standards. Um, so, you know, on Binance, you can sign up with a fake email address and a fake phone number, and you can use a VPN to get there from from other countries. And that's with, you know, $20,000 a day kind of limits. So right, I right. think but my, that, yeah, that's... But I was asking about, I mean, you know, for Coinbase and Kraken, they have had those policies in place for a long time. Yeah, absolutely. And they've been, I think, historically very strong as for the core fiat Bitcoin pairs. And literally, uh, we weren't able to offer that until even, you know, literally just a few weeks ago. Yeah, actually, one other thing I meant to say with that last question was that Bitwise has sponsored my podcast and Kraken is a, is a sponsor currently. Uh, so that's my disclosure. Um one other thing that I wanted to ask about was, you know, the Poloniex troll box was a hugely popular feature and uh, Polo shut that down in June 2017. And I noticed you guys just revived it, which seems, seems to sort of somewhat indicate that closing it was a mistake. Do you feel like maybe um, kind of closing up, down that community was also part of uh, Poloniex's troubles? Yeah. So, I mean, uh, a few things on that. So obviously the, the, the closing of the troll box, uh, significantly predated, um, our acquisition. So right, that, right. as you note, um, but I, what I can tell you is that, um, there was, a uh, about a 30% decline in usage immediately following the ending of the troll box. So it was definitely, um, uh, important. Um, however, you know, it was, uh, um, challenging back then for the company to, to moderate it and keep up with it. I think ultimately there was a decision that was, do we have, um, you know, the limited resources they had applied to customer support? Did they apply that to customer support or did they apply that to moderating the troll box? It needs moderation. It needs a scalable moderation model, um, because you need to ensure that, uh, you know, there, there isn't, you know, market manipulation or other forms of tactics deployed there. So, um, it was also, uh, with almost without exception, the number one feature request from customers, uh, after, after acquiring the company. And so we did ultimately prioritize it, rebuilt it, made it more scalable, built a scalable moderation model. And it also launched, uh, once, you know, we had what we felt were robust market surveillance capabilities in place on our platform that would make it safe. So, um, there's been a lot of enthusiasm for the return of the troll box and it, it is, uh, highly active these days, which is, which is great. Good luck. Uh, I always find forums to be somewhat challenging, but I think <laughs> if they're well moderated, they're like such yeah. a, such a, a wonderful benefit. I, I, I frankly love reading online conversations that are well moderated. Um, so, I saw that next week you'll be speaking at this Senate hearing titled Examining Regulatory Frameworks for Digital Currencies and Blockchain. What do you plan to say in your testimony? You know, I, I think there's really um, 
a few key themes that I, I would like to address to the committee. Um, you know, one theme is really just around helping to articulate and, and communicate and educate the, the committee on the diverse types of digital assets that exist. I think, um, you know, the, there's been a sort of kind of, uh, peripheral awareness of things like Bitcoin. There's been, uh, obviously a front and center awareness of this new stable value token and blockchain project from the Libra Association. But the, you know, I, I think the policymakers, in particular sitting senators and congresspeople, do not really have a broad understanding of the different types of digital currencies, blockchain platform tokens, stable coins. So one one thing I really want to do is is really just help provide a better understanding of all the innovation. Um, how to think about these things and and what are potentially some of the different policy implications of these different types of digital assets. So that's one, I think, significant piece. I think a second is I'd like to, you know, paint a picture of what the economic opportunity is from crypto. Um, what does a robust marketplace for digital assets and for innovation in the space look like? And um, and and what's at risk for the United States? economically and, and, uh, and, and, you know, from a financial market perspective, if, if we don't figure out how to get this right and, and support it. And, and ultimately, um, we think it's a competitive issue for any, any country. Um, I will also speak some very specifically about stable coins, um, providing more context on that uh, through our work with Coinbase on the Center Consortium and U.S. Dollar Coin. And then, you know, I think finally, um, our perspective on the regulatory environment, um, what we believe is, uh, is needed, um, uh, from a national crypto policy perspective. And in the context of that, of course, um, shed some light on some of our decisions around, um, different approaches to how we're going to operate the business given some of the, you know, I think, uh, limitations in terms of policy in the United States. One last question about your time in Bermuda. Did you enjoy wearing what's called the Bermuda rig? I had to Google this, um, which was the, you know, the suit jacket with the shorts and socks. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I think they've, they've figured out something there that I think we can all uh, learn from, which is that if you want to dress sharp and it's 90 degrees and humid, you know, there, there's a way to do that comfortably and, uh, it's great. I'm sold on it. Yeah. I noticed though that the rest of your team, they were all in normal suits. I was like, geez, where's the solidarity? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, it's been great having you on the show. Thanks for coming on Unconfirmed. Thank you, Laura. Thanks so much for joining us today. To learn more about the topics we discussed, be sure to check out the links in the show notes of your podcast player. If you enjoyed this podcast, be sure to share the episode on Facebook, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Unconfirmed is produced by me, Laura Shin, with help from Factual Recording, Anthony Yoon, Daniel Nuss, and Rich Straffolino. Thanks for listening.